Chapter Twenty Six of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. September twenty third. Our guests arrived about three weeks ago. Lord and Lady Lowborough have now been married above eight months, and I will do the lady the credit to say that her husband is quite an altered man. His looks, his spirit, and his temper are all perceptibly changed for the better since I last saw him. But there is room for improvement still. He is not always cheerful, nor always contented, and she often complains of his ill-humour, which, however, of all persons, she ought to be the last to accuse him of, as he never displays it against her, except for such conduct as would provoke a saint. He adores her still, and would go to the world's end to please her. She knows her power, and she uses it too. But well knowing that to wheedle and coax is safer than to command, she judiciously tempers her despotism with flattery and blandishments enough to make him deem himself a favoured and a happy man. But she has a way of tormenting him, in which I am a fellow-sufferer, or might be, if I chose to regard myself as such. This is by openly, but not too glaringly, coquetting with Mr. Huntingdon, who is quite willing to be her partner in the game. But I don't care for it, because with him I know there is nothing but personal vanity, and a mischievous desire to excite my jealousy, and, perhaps, to torment his friend, and she, no doubt, is actuated by much the same motives. Only, there is more of malice and less of playfulness in her manoeuvres. It is obviously, therefore, my interest to disappoint them both, as far as I am concerned, by preserving a cheerful, undisturbed serenity throughout. And, accordingly, I endeavour to show the fullest confidence in my husband, and the greatest indifference to the arts of my attractive guest. I have never reproached the former but once, and that was for laughing at Lord Lowborough's depressed and anxious countenance one evening, when they had both been particularly provoking— and then, indeed, I said a good deal on the subject, and rebuked him sternly enough. But he only laughed and said, You can feel for him, Helen, can't you? I can feel for any one that is unjustly treated, I replied, and I can feel for those that injure them, too. Why, Helen, you're as jealous as he is, cried he, laughing still more, and I found it impossible to convince him of his mistake. So, from that time, I have carefully refrained from any notice of the subject whatever, and left Lord Lowborough to take care of himself. He either has not the sense or the power to follow my example, though he does try to conceal his uneasiness as well as he can, but still it will appear in his face, and his ill-humour will peep out at intervals, though not in the expression of open resentment, they never go far enough for that. But I confess I do feel jealous at times, most painfully, bitterly so, when she sings and plays to him, and he hangs over the instrument, and dwells upon her voice with no affected interest. For then I know he is really delighted, and I have no power to awaken similar fervour. I can amuse and please him with my simple songs, but not delight him thus. 28th. Yesterday we all went to the grove, Mr. Hargrave's much-neglected home. His mother frequently asks us over, that she may have the pleasure of her dear Walter's company, and this time she had invited us to a dinner-party, and got together as many of the country gentry as were within reach to meet us. The entertainment was very well got up, but I could not help thinking about the cost of it all the time. I don't like Mrs. Hargrave. She is a hard, pretentious, worldly-minded woman. She has money enough to live very comfortably, if she only knew how to use it judiciously, and had taught her son to do the same. But she is ever straining to keep up appearances, with that despicable pride that shuns the semblance of poverty as of a shameful crime. She grinds her dependents, pinches her servants, and deprives even her daughters and herself of the real comforts of life, 
because she will not consent to yield the palm in outward show to those who have three times her wealth, and above all, because she is determined her cherished son shall be enabled to hold up his head with the highest gentleman in the land. This same son, I imagine, is a man of expensive habits, no reckless spendthrift, and no abandoned sensualist, but one who likes to have everything handsome about him, and to go to a certain length in youthful indulgences, not so much to gratify his own tastes as to maintain his reputation as a man of fashion in the world, and a respectable fellow among his own lawless companions, while he is too selfish to consider how many comforts might be obtained for his fond mother and sisters, with the money he thus wastes upon himself. As long as they can contrive to make a respectable appearance once a year, when they come to town, he gives himself little concern about their private stintings and struggles at home. This is a harsh judgment to form, of dear, noble-minded, generous-hearted Walter, but I fear it is too just. Mrs. Hargrave's anxiety to make good matches for her daughters is partly the cause, and partly the result, of these errors. By making a figure in the world, and showing them off to advantage, she hopes to obtain better chances for them, and by thus living beyond her legitimate means, and lavishing so much on their brother, she renders them portionless, and makes them burdens on her hands. Poor Millicent, I fear, has already fallen a sacrifice to the manoeuvrings of this mistaken mother, who congratulates herself on having so satisfactorily discharged her maternal duty, and hopes to do as well for Esther. But Esther is a child as yet, a little merry romp of fourteen, as honest-hearted and as guileless and simple as her sister, but with a fearless spirit of her own, that I fancy her mother will find some difficulty in bending to her purposes. End of chapter 26